0: I feel it is a brave and courageous and shining moment in the life of any woman or man when he or she resolves to defy some of the currents that shape our often angry and confused, chaotic and violent world. And there is great wisdom in this defiance because it is the expression of these currents in our life that creates so much suffering and so much heartbreak for so many of us. The movement of these currents often leave us feeling at war with ourselves. We treat ourselves carelessly and harshly, perhaps. We don't accept deeply who we are. There's a feeling of poverty, of inner kindness, inner sensitivity, feeling of inner harmony, and forgiveness are so often just not there. You perhaps feel fundamentally disconnected from the deeper truths of who we are. We live with very little inner reference and so often feel that our lives are defined by our circumstances and by those around us. And these currents, these energies of denial and avoidance and confusion Also affect how we relate to others, how we relate to the world around us. So many people feel disconnected and isolated, misunderstood. There's no sense often of communion with other human beings and with nature. Our world feels perhaps at times deeply threatening and malevolent, challenging and unkind. And all in all, for so many people in our world, life feels unworkable, out of balance, and often so painful. And yet, blessedly and thankfully, there are some human beings who choose not to accept this state of affairs. Rather than all the chaos and all the confusion, some of us choose to heed our personal calls to destiny. We defy the norms around us, and we set forth on the great spiritual journey. Something deep within us whispers that it is the birthright of each and every one of us to know the deepest kind of love and connection in our lives, both within ourselves and in the world around us. And in our courageous decision, we echo a spiritual odyssey that did begin two and a half thousand years ago when Siddhartha Gautama, the man who was to become the Buddha, when he left the comfort and seclusion of the royal palace walls and entered the harsh reality of life from which he had been protected for the first twenty-nine years of his existence. And over the six years of his search after he left the comfort of the kingdom, any search for understanding, any search for freedom from suffering, he had to let go, surrender to, and die to many of the currents and circumstances that had shaped and defined the life from which he'd come. And over those years of deep spiritual search in the forests of northern India, he was haunted by the images of old age, sickness, and death. These images which had jolted him out of the complacency and comfort of his royal years and which had propelled him on his own spiritual journey. And he resolved to know a freedom that endured beyond the suffering that he found both within himself and all around him. In his search he practiced severe self-mortification and deprivation. He endured great hardship. He was subjected to huge temptation and the forces of doubt. He pushed himself to great limits. Wide eyed and heart open, he pursued every avenue in his quest for freedom and for understanding until at last, six years after he began, under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, in meditation, he open to the deepest understanding possible for any human being. He was enlightened, he was a Buddha, and that part of his journey was over. And I feel that for each of us, as it was for the Buddha two and a half thousand years ago, the spiritual journey is no easy endeavor. It's really tough and it's hard and it's really challenging too. And if our movement towards truth is true and authentic, we must open to the full and complete range of what it truly means to be born human on this exquisite planet. We must come to places of immense loveliness within ourselves. We open to the capacity of our great hearts to love and to care, to nurture and to cherish, to appreciate we open to places perhaps for the first time of a real deep kind of happiness and contentment places of kindness and calm loving kindness like exquisite flower buds on the spiritual journey we must all open into our fullest and most beautiful loveliness and on the same spiritual journey As a part of that same opening, that same blossoming, we must also open to our capacity to rage and to fear, to grasp, to cling, to push away and to divide. We come to know the forces perhaps of guilt and greed and covetousness and avoidance and denial that are there too. And acknowledging and opening to these forces also can be one of the most difficult and painful challenges of the spiritual journey. Really heartbreaking as we begin to see the truth for the first time, perhaps. And I have found in my experience, thankfully, that in the natural unfolding of the spiritual practice, we strengthen and cultivate certain attitudes and qualities of mind and heart that keep us going particularly during the hard times qualities like patience and surrender trust forgiveness resolve resilience non-harming all vital to the spiritual awakening and such important friends as we journey on however I do feel that unless and until we come face to face with our mortality Until we feel the ever-present sense of our death in life, our efforts remain somewhat shallow, superficial, and limited. On the other hand, it is my experience that as a consequence of our willingness to grapple with the fundamental issues of life and death, difficult as that might be, as a consequence, great passion and urgency are unleashed into the spiritual journey, fortifying us during the hard times and serving us in precisely the same way as the Buddha was served all those years ago. When I was asked to give this talk about, I don't know, it was a long time ago, I chose this evening for a specific reason. This is quite a poignant anniversary for me. It's now five years since I was diagnosed HIV positive, and I felt like I'd like to be here at, at this time. And in so many ways, on so many levels, life today is really indistinguishable from what it was five years ago when I was diagnosed. Of course, what is also true is that I was HIV positive long before July 9, 1989. I believe I was infected about 11 or 12 years ago. But the impact of hearing that information five years ago, that I was dealing with a very serious disease, has reverberated through so many levels of my being, and certainly still continues to do so. And i can also say that there aren't many benefits of living (laughs) with this virus some people sort of get sidetracked and begin to see it as a complete blessing i just want to interrupt that right (laughs) at the beginning there aren't many benefits but perhaps the greatest benefit for me has been to use its presence in my life in my bloodstream to enter into the greater and deeper questions of human existence. Questions like, why the suffering in my life? Why the suffering around me? What is life? What truly is the meaning of death? Is there an end to the suffering? It is my experience that living with a pretty constant reminder of my mortality, and just being aware of the changes that happen in my body over time. These can be a rather tough but very true step into these difficult questions of human life. So what I'd like to do this evening is to share with you some of the ways that I've grappled with the issue of life and death over the years, ways that I've stumbled, ways that I've fallen. What I can certainly say is that From my experience, particularly over the last year, maybe two years, I am convinced that true happiness and that peace which passeth all understanding are the birth child and the possibility of our willingness to enter into communion with the indisputable fact that each one of us sitting over here in this room is certainly going to die one day and that none of us know when that's going to happen. I've titled this talk, Urgency, Contentment and the Edges of Love. So I don't for a moment believe that all of us need to be taken by the scruff of the neck, by some wayward virus or disease in order that we might face our death candidly and honestly and know a pervading sense of urgency and resolve in our lives. However, what is also clear is that we certainly live in a society that strenuously avoids and denies death in every way possible. Thus, coming closer to the reality of death is no easy endeavor in our world. It's as if those royal palace walls that surrounded Siddhartha in the first twenty-nine years of his life, protecting him from the harsh realities of the wider existence outside those palace walls. It is as if those walls have become the walls of our hospitals, the walls of our mental asylums, the walls of our old-age homes, our nursing homes, places where we often send people that we ourselves might be protected from the suffering that they're going through, be it the suffering of sickness, of old age or the suffering of death. Most people either deny death or see it as an annihilation, a harsh finality. And really it is staggering to reflect, to realize that what this means is that the vast majority of human beings either deny or live their lives terrified of something that is absolutely certain to happen. And if we define ourselves by our accumulations, by our credit cards, by our personalities, by our accomplishments, by our appearances, then death is indeed a wrenching and harsh finality. However, if on the other hand we can hold ourselves with wisdom and with care and explore the deeper truths of who we are, we may come to sense that death is more a transition, kind of like stepping from one garden into the next. No finality, no annihilation, just the next step in the miracle of unfolding life. And yet this is really a challenging perspective and understanding in a society so deeply at odds with the truth of itself. We live in a world where youth and sex and power and beauty are worshipped and deified. At the same time, we mostly shun and marginalize our elderly and our infirm. Rather than celebrate and value and seek out the wisdom of the aged, we largely discard these people when their useful lives are over, to die lonely and so often unloved. No wonder, for example, that there have been many people with AIDS who have died of starvation rather than from the ravages of the disease itself, just neglected and ignored, marginalized. I have friends with AIDS who say that often the pain of being considered a moral outcast is far worse than the pain of the disease itself. People with all terminal illnesses often are cast aside by the mainstream, stigmatized by other human beings, largely because they're unable to face the certainty of their own death, mirrored in the circumstance they see before them. We have polite and correct language to cloak the harsh reality of death. This is the great Indian poet uh, Tagore. He says, the father came back from the funeral rites. His boy of seven stood at the window with eyes wide open and a golden amulet hanging from his neck, full of thoughts too difficult for his age. His father took him in his arms and the boy asked, Where is my mother? In heaven, answered his father, pointing to the sky. The boy raised his eyes to the sky and longed gazed in silence. His bewildered mind sent abroad into the night the question, where is heaven? And no answer came, and the stars seemed like the burning tears of that ignorant darkness. Often when people die, their bodies are whisked away, to appear a couple of days later looking more lifelike and alive (laughs) than the people look when they were still living. It's all such a lie. It's all such a conspiracy. And it's not surprising that virtually nobody talks frankly and openly about death, about what it means to die. After the Buddha's enlightenment, he taught for 40 years and he never ceased to emphasize the certainty of death and the precariousness and the preciousness of life. He implored his nuns and monks and the lay people to embrace fundamentally the fact of their mortality. Not to terrorize them, not to scare the living daylights out of them, because that would just be another prison, another straitjacket, another place of fear. But rather, as an expression of his great heart, he knew that people would be fundamentally happier if they could face this most fundamental of fears. He urged them to find peace with death. He promised the greatest fullness in life if we find peace with the certainty of our dying. I feel we cannot live fully in this moment if we've not let go fully of the moment that's just passed. There's a wonderful image in uh, the Buddhist text that that says, you know, the world is nuts. It's like we're all living in houses that are burning down and we're rushing around trying to rearrange the furniture. (laughs) (coughs) Or the the other one I I read a while ago was, it's like we all have turbans that are on fire and we're all standing at the mirror putting on makeup and trying to beautify ourselves. I guess they had a sense of humor even then. But really, the fact and issue of death, I feel, is so urgent. It is possible in any moment. I remember when I was diagnosed, I went on retreat a couple of months later, and I just felt that I wasn't going to see the spring, let alone the end of the retreat. Everything just felt as if it had been pulled out from under my feet. And I remember sitting in the back of the hall and looking over the heads of the people in front of me. And those of you who have done some retreating know how much love you feel for the people that you're sitting with. And I just had this feeling of gratitude that I knew that I was going to die. I really knew indisputably that I was going to die one day. And felt so privileged in that understanding. And I wondered how many of these people are actually going to die before me and don't know it and you know at IMS a lot of people that sit regularly every year and now five people have died since my diagnosis and I feel what they didn't have was the benefit of just knowing that life is so precious and not to be wasted. It's absolutely certain to happen. The Buddha's gone, Christ's gone, Steve Bicko's gone, Martin Luther King's gone. And yet it is so difficult in our world for death to be the touchstone from which we live our life. Can we bring a sense of urgency into our life? Can we know an abiding appreciation for the fragility of life and the fragility of breath, for the gift of possibility? Can death be an advisor to the decisions of our life? This is an <coughs> often quoted piece by Carlos Castaneda from Journey to Ixlan. He says, Death is our eternal companion. He says, It is always to your left at an arm's length and it's always watching you. It always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask your death for its advice. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you can catch a glimpse of it or if you can just catch the feeling that your companion is there. Meditation practice is one sure way of engaging life and death. Personally, I had no idea how prepared I was five years ago, and how much the years of meditation had prepared me for the impact of that devastating information. I now understand more deeply than ever that in a real way, in our awareness of the birth and death of sounds and sights, the arising and passing away of emotions and feelings in the body, sounds, thoughts, smells, all of these bring us face to face with the transitoriness of human life and of nature. In meditation we observe the beginning, the middle, the end, the birth, the life and the death of all phenomena, and slowly, perhaps even imperceptibly, we begin to move away from the dream of permanence to a sense of the insecurity and the instability of all life. There are times in the unfolding of the meditation practice, as many of you know, when this transitoriness, this insecurity, is obvious indisputable, and really, in my experience, quite terrifying. We find that every aspect of experience is changing rapidly and ceaselessly. Even on the most microscopic level, there is nothing that is existing. Everything is just arising and passing away. And simultaneous with all of this arising and passing away is an awareness of the consciousness, like a parallel process happening with the arising and passing away. And consciousness is really simply the knowing quality, that quality or faculty of mind that knows what's going on. And in this case, it's knowing the arising and passing away, just objects and the knowing of them, two parallel processes, nothing more, no Gavin, no Trudy, no Jason, nobody, just empty phenomena, changing, arising and passing away. And from this perspective of insight and understanding and selflessness, we understand that in essence we are not our credit cards, we are not our bank accounts, we are not our personalities, we are not our bodies, we are not our careers. We are a part of the ebb and flow of all life. Nothing more than that. And in my experience, this important insight is terrifying and difficult to accept. Some people refer to it as the rolling up of the mat stage in meditation. (laughs) You just want to stop, it's just horrible, you know. (laughs) But at the same time, I certainly found that there was a feeling of deep exhilaration. That exhilaration which arises as we begin to approach and touch the deeper truths of life, in my case for the first time difficult, indisputable, but I can certainly say in my own experience was the beginning of a contentment that was never there before. This is one way we prepare to die in, in meditation. In the early 1980s, I ordained as a monk at a, at a Burmese monastery, a forest monastery, and the practice that we did there was one that probably not many of you have done. It's called Meditation on the 32 Parts of the Body. And we, we, the nuns and monks all lived in tents. So what we did day after day was focus on different parts of the body. So, for example, the first three days, we would just focus on the hair of the head. Then we would focus on the teeth. So it would be the hair and the teeth. And then we'd do the hair, the teeth, and the bones. And then the <laughs> fluids of the body, you know. So it would be like blood and pus and urine and tears and semen and the fluid of the joints. And so they're all like classically 32 parts of the body. This was a meditation that the Buddha taught. And you know, day after day, month after month, we were all doing this. And what began to happen at some point was the feeling of solidity, do you know that feeling that we all have like, this is me, you know, began to sort of crumble and it became a little scary. It was like the ground started getting a little bit shaky and, and the experience of the body was one that was more flow than solidity. So there was fear it was terrifying but it was also really exhilarating and after many months of this we were taken one evening to a local university and we were taken to the department of anatomy and uh, we were spirited in there under the cloak of darkness and, and told to each sit beside a table so we each sat behind the table there were a lot of burmese monks with us too and some westerners and there were these huge envelopes on the tables next to us that were like at shoulder level. And then, you know, we were all sort of guided in a meditation, a loving-kindness, and then we were told to unzip these things. And we unzipped, and there was this woman lying next to me on the table. And I looked at her, and she had like a earring, a little, a little gold stud earring, and her toenails were painted red, and she didn't look as if she died in a lot of pain. She was absolutely normal, so to speak, except she wasn't breathing, you know. And we were, we were all very concentrated and, you know, we were in sort of somewhat, you know, we were like on retreat, really. And then, um, and then the head nun came to me because she was the one who took us. She said, now I want you to go to the other side of the table. And so I went to the other side of the table and it was like this woman had been sliced in half. And it was unbelievable. It was like in that moment there was like an irrevocable shift in my mind because I realized how much I had identified both with the surface of myself and the surface of everyone else. But when you look at it from the other perspective, it's completely different. It's just raw meat, you know? And it's like <laughs> what we regard as one another is the tiniest fraction of a millimeter that covers, you know, the other truth of who we are. And I feel like my mind has never been able to revert to the delusion of before, that. There's been a real shift in that, and it felt so precious. It felt like such a gift. And for me it was really a further preparation of coming into alignment with the, with the deeper truth of who I am. If we'd lived two and a half thousand years ago in the time of the Buddha, we, we may have been there when he gave what for me I think is one of his most touching sermons. All his nuns and monks gathered on a mountaintop, around him and there were apparently thousands of people and he reached down and he picked up it just happens to be a flower over here and he picked up a flower and held it and he held it for hours and he didn't say a word. He just stood there with his flower, (laughs) sat there with his flower and held it. And at the end of about three or four hours, one of the monks who was standing near the front, apparently the sort of beatific smile came to his face and he looked at the Buddha and indicated to him that he'd received the teaching. That as this flower slowly wilted and died and fell apart in his arms, he really saw that everything that is given birth is going to die, including this flower, including everything. And he was able to internalize that understanding to such depth that he broke through all the delusion and he completely freed himself from suffering. He was enlightened just by looking at the uh, deterioration and falling apart of a flower. Not a word was spoken. On the other hand, if we'd been around at the time of the Buddha, he may have sent us to the burning guts, to the funeral grounds, where the dead bodies were put on pyres and burnt there, which is the custom in India even today. And the Buddha would have instructed us to contemplate that the same fate awaited us all too, that we could not separate ourselves from what we saw happening in those burning guts. And this would not be for some sort of macabre or weird or gloomy reason, but just to open us to the fact that death awaits us all, it is indisputable, and that there's no getting away from it. I I go to South Africa in the winter every year, or for the last few years I've been able to go, And When I was there this last winter, I had the privilege of teaching a retreat with a wonderful man from Sri Lanka, perhaps some of you know him. His name is Godwin Samara Ratna. He works a lot with um, hospice people, you know, uh, people who are dying there. He's the sort of leading person. He's also a Buddhist meditation teacher with his own monastery. And uh, he was really shocked to hear that the first time I'd seen a dead body was when I was 39 years old. He just couldn't get over that. He laughed and laughed. He said, it's just, it's just, it's so funny, you know, that you're 39 years old, which was when my father died. Uh, not, Not their body, somebody who died. I was with my dad when he died and it was the first time that it had ever happened for me. And he told me, he said, you know, I was down in Cape Town teaching a retreat and somebody died and they asked me if I would speak at the funeral. So I said, sure, you know, I've done that a lot. And so he was down in Cape Town and he said, I went to this place called a funeral parlor. And he said, and he said everybody was putting all their energy into not crying, not showing any emotion, but just, he said, in his words, stiff upper lip. He said, everybody was stiff upper lip, you know, and he said, it was so depressing. And he said, in Sri Lanka, when somebody dies, we cry and we shout and we moan and the children all over the place and the body's left in the living room and it's there for days and it may even start smelling a little bit, but he said it happens all the time and it's like it's a part of our life, you know. Apparently, I haven't been to India, but apparently if you go to a railway station there, the chances are you're gonna trip over dead bodies lying around there. People have wrapped up the bodies of their relatives to take home to the villages for ritual and for the funeral rites, you know. The evidence of death is everywhere and yet we have this conspiracy of silence that we think is protecting us but I question that. I don't think we're being protected. So I said to God when I had this friend in America who's a hospice worker and she was working with a woman who was 96 and who was dying and this woman was lying there and all she was saying was Why me? Why me? Why me?
1: You know? And Godwin
0: laughed and laughed. He said, you know, in Sri Lanka where people are dying all over the t- all over the place and it's like, you know, from the earlier stage you know what it's all about. He said, he sits down with people and he said the question they ask him over and over again is, Why me? Why me? So so he said, I always say to them, and why not you?
1: <laughs>
0: why not you? He's a great guy. <laughs> For most of us, the fear of death fundamentally determines how fully we are able to open to life. Our need to be in control, our need for security, our need for stability, our need for insurance, our need to feel in charge, I feel are all expressions of our fear of death and an unacceptance of change. After my diagnosis in 1989, fear hit me like a brick wall. I mean, I have such vivid memories of sitting in meditation in an absolute pool of perspiration, even more than this evening here. (laughs) And uh, it was like a volcano inside of me and there was this ever-present sense of loss that just permeated, felt like every cell in my body. At times, everything seemed to mirror what no longer seemed possible in my life. I was haunted by memories of, at that point I guess about 40 of my friends had been directly affected with AIDS, and many of them had died, and I was haunted by the memories of them, and I was haunted by all the possibilities and the permutations of these diseases. It was like they all came to sit with me on my pillow. And I tortured myself with these thoughts, dreams, hopes, possibilities, all of those just felt like they were lying in pieces, shattered around me. It was really a difficult time, and nothing felt stable. Nothing felt certain, nothing felt dependable or reliable. And this is really what I tried to open to as best I could on that retreat. All this fear of death, the terrors, the sadness, the grieving, the rage, and all the thoughts, the proliferation of thoughts arising out of these emotions. This is Simone Weil. She says, She speaks about thoughts and how we torture ourselves with thoughts. She says, when thought is obliged by an attack of physical pain, however slight, to recognize the presence of affliction, a state of mind is brought about as acute as that of a condemned man who is forced to look for hours at the guillotine that is going to cut off his head. Human beings can live for 20 or 50 years in this state. We pass quite close to them without realizing it. What man is capable of discerning such souls unless Christ himself looks through his eyes? I soon realized that I was deeply at odds with the virus. The virus felt so threatening, malevolent and vicious. It had killed my friends, now it was going to kill me. More fear of death people suggested a visualization that was popular at that time where you visualize like all these t-cells which are the good guys in your body they sort of protect you and these t-cells would sort of go after the bad guys which are the virus you know kind of like a pac-man you know they (laughs) gobble 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 and you know you do this thing and you know being a sort of zealous natured person i you know i would have these like massive wars in my body you know and i would sort of leave this visualization feeling like there was a battleground covered, you know, with bodies and blood all over the place. It was terrible. So, I realized that this wasn't for me, this, um, gobble-gobble visualization. (laughs) So, but, you know, I did sense a real deep need for some sort of peace and balance with what was going on, as difficult as it was. In my experience, being diagnosed HIV positive is a dual diagnosis. On the one hand, it's a physical diagnosis, and a lot of us are familiar with what that means, but I feel that it's also a diagnosis of fear. Along with the virus come the collective terrors and the irrational phobias and the ignorant fears of a society deeply fearful of a virus that it largely neither knows nor understands. And I felt all of this also within me and I realized that I needed to be so careful about my relationship with this virus. If I related to the virus with fear and anger, if I resist it, if I fight with it, if I struggle with it, I wage well with myself, with all that that means. If I allow myself to be a victim of this virus, I'm a goner because feeling victimized by anything is a certain kind of death for me. The truth is, that this virus is a part of my life now, and has been for the last 12 years or so. It would be easy to relate to it in the self-same way that our society relates to the tragedy of AIDS. Neglectfully, largely, and loathfully, carelessly, certainly, and ignorantly, sanctimoniously. All so much fear of the virus, and at the same time, a fear of death. And over the last five years, I've cultivated a relationship with the virus, and through this relationship I feel that I've been able to address to a significant degree the question and the issue of the fear of the disease that I'm living with, and also the fear of death. Some of you have heard this before, but it's a really important part of my life, so I'm really happy to share it again. As you know, I come from South Africa, and when I'm there, I spend a lot of my time in Zululand. It's a place very close to my heart. It's where I teach at a meditation center in Zululand. And there's a Zulu name that I love called Sipo. It's it's a man's name, Sipo, and if I was ever to change my name, I would call myself Sipo. So what I decided to do was to call the virus Sipo. So what I do is, in the morning when I wake up, the first thing I do before I get out of bed is i check in with sepo so it's, you know it sort of goes something like this hi there how you doing oh i'm okay there was a bit of a rough night wasn't it yeah oh well there, there we go uh what are your needs and you know CIPO might say gee i'm really tired today or i feel sort of aggravated you know or i feel petulant today and then i'd say well now look we're giving a talk at C I M C tonight
1: <laughs> so it's like
0: don't act up today <laughs> Tomorrow you can act up, that's fine, and you know, today we've got a lot of things to do, so let's like agree on this. So it's like we talk, we chat, we check in,
1: and, and then we agree,
0: okay, he'll sort of lay low today, tomorrow he can do what he wants to do. And then we affirm our relationship, because our relationship is based fundamentally on the fact that I live, he lives. I die, he dies. So we just get clear about the relationship. And then I have this image. It's like I image Sipo as this like really strapping young guy, and he's on rollerblades, okay?
1: Ah! And
0: he's like, he's flying through my body, and I image him like swimming through my body, da 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 da, da and, you know, and I say to him, now I want you to go really quickly through the parts of my body that are um, susceptible, that are weaker. So it's like my stomach, you'll zoom through my stomach, you know, and zoom through my back, and he's like going. And then I say to him, now when you get close to the kidneys, This is what I want you to do. I want you to let go of all the negative HIV factors. So we're not saying we're going to get rid of the HIV. We're going to get rid of those that can hurt me. So it's like he, he comes near the kidneys, and then what happens is he lets them go, and they go bounce, bounce, bounce over the blood vessels into the kidneys. And then they're in the kidneys and then they go woo down to the bladder. And then and then I jump out of bed and I rush through to the toilet and I pee and I watch all those negative HIV factors go into the toilet bowl and I say, May all beings be happy and I <laughs> and
1: off they go, you know. <laughs> So I told
0: this story once in an in a HIV support group I was in, and these other guys were pretty straight. I was definitely on the fringe with them, but, I, you know, I thought I'd share with them this thing. And this one guy turned to me afterwards and he said, I have never heard anything so ridiculous in all of my life, but I'm undeterred. <laughs> But what's happened over time, and this is, like, more seriously for a moment, if I can do it, over time, on a deeper level, what's happened over these five years is that I have come into relationship with Sipo. And I feel that the quality of humor is vital, because it would be so easy for Sipo to have constellated around him all of the heaviness associated with the virus. And the virus is not in control of my life anymore. It doesn't feel, I don't feel victimized at all. We respect one another, and I can say that the fear of death is not ever-present as it once was in my life. Sipo and I are doing a dance together for as long as we possibly can. And I feel that for all of us who deal with difficult issues, whether they're physical, whether they're psychological, of whatever nature, we need to grapple with whatever fear is factored into our relationship. That with the difficult circumstances in our lives so that our life is not governed by the gridlock of fear that that surrounds them so that we can deal with these issues free of that gridlock and they become so much more malleable and workable when fear is not holding them in a straitjacket all the time. And sometimes humor is the best way to work with it on some levels. And really this unfolding and challenging relationship with Sipo has taught me deep and difficult lessons and today I really feel and sense that this relationship with SIBO is one of the most important determining factors for the fact that I'm still privileged and lucky enough to be alive now because I'm quite sure that if I had lived these last five years as deeply in conflict with my diagnosis as I was at the beginning, it would have been much, much more difficult and I might not have even been here today. And so this has been a further way over the years that I've grappled with this fear of death. A few years ago I felt really deeply stirred to to prepare fully to die as much as possible on every level. All that was unresolved, unfinished, incomplete, relating to dying felt increasingly painful and weighty. I decided to begin full preparations to die and to live from that Preparedness. I sensed a ripening of a surrender to the realities of my life and at the same time I felt sort of undermined by all that impeded the letting go that I sensed was possible. So like on a purely practical level, I found simple and modest accommodation near my healers, near IMS, my spiritual home, near my support group and friends. I established contact with hospice and AIDS organizations. I took care of all the legal matters, my wills, my power of attorneys, and entered into discussions with my family and friends about how I wished to die living wills, uh, prolongation of life, my ashes, my estate. The spirit of readiness and preparedness to die immediately began to impact my relationships. With Adelaide, my mother, we share sort of ever-present reminders of our mortality. She's 76 and her health is not good. And when I'm with her now, we easily share our thoughts and fears about dying, and our hopes and our dreams. And we're so much closer for that process. And with friends, too, this question of unfinished business often arises when I say goodbye to friends, particularly, for example, when I'm leaving here to go to Africa for three months. I say goodbye to my friends in a way that doesn't assume that I'm going to see them again. So sometimes what I do is I appreciate them as if I won't see them again and say all that has been unsaid up to that point. And then when I leave South Africa for nine months, I never know whether or not, of course, I'm going to be back there. And so when I say goodbye, I truly am able to say goodbye in a much deeper and fuller and complete way. So that hopefully when it is that I do eventually die, and if I have anything to do with that, I'll be here till I'm 80. But Whenever it's going to be, hopefully I'll be able to die without feeling that there's a lot of unfinished stuff around me. Over the last years, I've been able to more and more clearly discern what is authentic and honest in relationship to my friendships. These days, I'm so grateful. I wholeheartedly cherish my friends largely free of a fear that to some degree has always kept me a little or a lot separate from those in my life. Friendships are now among the greatest happinesses of my life and this is really a new experience for me. I feel it easier to let go of friendships too. Some people are just not able to walk this path with me. Some people's own paths take them in a different direction. The paths of friendship diverge. And at the beginning, when I was newly diagnosed, I felt I needed to have everybody around me and I couldn't bear to think of anyone leaving. But I no longer cling to fear friendships with that sort of fearful fear that one day I'm going to be alone with nobody to help me. Friends seem to come and go with much greater ease. And I really treasure this deeply. It feels so much less complicated. And it feels like the whole realm of friendship is now being held in that rhythm of arisings and passings away that I'm beginning to see in other aspects of my life. This is Carlos Castaneda again. He says – this is Don Juan, who's the sorcerer speaking to Carlos – he says, Every warrior has a place to die, a place of his predilection which is soaked with unforgettable memories, where powerful events have left their mark. a place where he has witnessed marvels, where secrets have been revealed to him. Finally, one day when his time on earth is up, and he feels the tap of death on his left shoulder, his spirit, which is always ready, flies to the place of his predilection, and there the warrior dances his last dance. If a dying warrior has limited power, his stance is short. If his power is grandiose, his dance is magnificent. But regardless of whether his power is small or magnificent, death must stop to witness his last dance on earth. In your last dance, you will tell of the battles you have won and those you have lost. You will tell of the joys and of the bewilderments. Your dance will tell of the secrets and about the marvels you have stored, and your death will sit there and watch. The dying sun will glow on you, and the wind will be soft and mellow. And the hilltop will tremble as you reach the end of your dance and you will look to the sun for you will never see it again in waking or dreaming. And then your death will point to the south, to the vastness. I've also had to face death over these last years through the suicides of many friends who over these years, many with AIDS, who've taken their lives. And at first when when that happened, I felt really angry. I was fighting to love and struggling to survive, and it was like they were just taking an easier route out. But my attitude has changed a lot over the years. As I live with HIV, I feel I begin to know, to a degree, the hellish ground from which the decision can come to take your life with a disease that is very difficult and challenging. And I've reflected on suicide a lot, and I certainly don't have any answers, but I'd just like to share with you some of my reflections. AIDS-related dementia, one of the, the progressions of, of the disease for some people, involves severe or complete deterioration of the mind. So the question is, is suicide an option? before the mind deteriorates and while there still is some clarity. Is that a reasonable option or isn't it? I had a friend who was in the final stages of the disease and he slipped into dementia. He was a very aware man. Uh, And for a week the awareness continued through this state of mind and then after a week he was able to pull himself out and he came out and he knew that he wouldn't be able to resist the impulse to go back there. And so what he decided to do was he was going to end his life. And he knew how he was going to do it and he said, in five days, at this time in the afternoon, I'm going to do it. I want all these people here to say goodbye to me this week. I want my room filled with flowers. I want Gregorian chants playing. And I'm going to do it on Thursday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And that's what he did. And he said goodbye. And five days later, he did it because he was absolutely sure that he was going to slip back and would never emerge again. And he valued the clarity of mind at death more than whatever the repercussions were of taking his life. According to the laws of karma in the Buddhist tradition, results, consequences flow from our intentions. What is the intention behind taking one's life? Stephen Levine says that He feels that if the intention to take one's life is based on care and compassion for those around one and for oneself, that he can't believe that the consequences (coughs) can be very dire. Questions. All questions. I just come to the conclusion that no one is really in the position to judge the decision of another in terms of what they're going to do with their life and when they're going to end it. Up until today, personally, I've made no preparations, no preparations for suicide. I know that I would like to die with clarity, but I have no idea what's in store for me, what lies ahead. But it's certainly not an option that I'm going to completely dismiss. But I do know that I don't any longer carry any feelings of stigmatization or judgment against people who choose to end their life in this way. So, in closing, I'd just like to reflect a little on how I feel This, the, the issue of death informs my life. Particularly in this last year, as the fear of death subsides and drops away at times, in its absence, for the first time, I've shattered to realize how much of life has been absorbed into the fear and the terror of death. It is clear that into the space left by the departed fear pours all the love that was previously impossible. On retreat in the fall last year, I realized that the commitment to inner kindness and care is now really inviolate and non-negotiable. The patterns of self-hatred and self-crucifixion, self-flagellation and violence have almost fallen away completely now. And one of the ways this kindness, this lessening of fear, manifests and most clearly reveals itself is in relationship to my sexuality. In spite of the sexual abuse that happened both in my infancy and through my teenage years, and in spite of the HIV diagnosis, both issues which really impact on one's sexuality a lot, as you can imagine, I feel that today there is a deeper self-respect a reconciliation and prideful acceptance of who I am, both relating to myself as a, as a homosexual man and also as a fully alive and passionate human being. I feel more alive in that part of my life than ever before. In the last years, I've also opened to places of inner reference that increasingly inform and enrich my life and the decisions that I make. So too, as death more and more informs my life and its choices, I feel able to take deeper responsibility for the decisions I make and how I love my days. Gone is the fantasy that some gorgeous hero is going to gallop into my life and <laughs> scoop me into his arms and rescue me from the suffering and the heartbreak. In his place I really do find today an increasing willingness, commitment and ability to dance with what is given as best I can. And this taking ever greater responsibility for fullness in life feels like the very best and most loving medication I can offer myself in the circumstances in which I live these days. I also know beyond doubt that this fullness this sensitivity, this feeling and experience of a heart awakened from a long, long sleep. This fullness flows freely from the feeling of proximity to death that pervades my life now. This is Trungpa who says, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find as you look closely that you are looking into outer space. What are you? Where is your heart if you look? If you really look, you, will f- you, w- you won't find anything tangible or solid. Of course, you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against someone or if you've fallen possessively in love, but that is not the awakened heart. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there except tenderness. You feel sore and soft, And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. Ultimately, this kind of sadness does not come because you've been mistreated or abused, because someone has insulted you, or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There is no skin, there is no tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. Even if a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is open and tender and very personal. And this open fearlessness comes from letting the world touch your life. At this time of my life, with all its challenges, the sense of urgency seems greater than ever. As life becomes more workable and as the spirit of contentment broadens, the wisdom of grappling with death and life on deeper and deeper levels becomes more urgent and vital. Having died to Gavin the athlete and the Gavin the tennis player and Gavin the healthy and the perfectly able, all dreadful losses and sadnesses, I now find myself opening to places of joy and peace that infinitely surpass the things that I have had to let go of. I once again allow myself outrageous dreams and hopes for miracles and other possibilities. I allow these indulgences in fantasy because I know they are balanced by a candid face-to-face engagement with the harsh realities in my life at this time. I let my wings open as wide as they can unfold, for I know that I am protected by a life that has death as its advisor. In the last year a sense of childlike effervescence and wonder and joy has slowly emerged into my life and this is really intoxicating and so new and it feels like this is also the best medicine possible for me. I sense the parts of me that were frozen and squashed by the impact of the abuse and by the HIV diagnosis are coming forward now with great delight and spirit and celebration. And what is wondrous is that these feelings are clearly not conditional upon the absence of pain and difficulty. They are the playmates of all that is happening, pleasant and unpleasant. With this birthing come interludes of the deepest peace, surrender, contentment and calm that I've ever known is a poem that means so much to me by Han Chan, the Chinese poet. He says, in my former days of bitter poverty, every night I counted other people's wealth. Today i thought and thought and then thought it through. Everyone must make their own. I dug and found a hidden treasure, a crystal pearl completely pure. Even if the blue-eyed foreigner of great ability wanted to buy it, secretly and take it away, I would immediately tell him that this pearl has no price. This sweetness, this pearl, which is the birthright of each of us, unquestionably makes the hard times more bearable and more workable. It also feels easier to die these days, knowing the parts of me that were dead are alive again today. In spite of the facts, in this my forty-fourth year, twelve years with this disease, I can really say to you that I am happier and more at peace with myself and my circumstances than I've ever been before. In this last year, there's renewed passion and zeal and interest that has flowered in the meditation practice where this whole journey began. that bud <clears throat> that felt so tight when I began this journey long ago, now really feels wide open and filled with color and showered with blessing for all that has been possible in my life. Thank you. May we sit together for a moment, please. <clears throat> during which I'd like to share with you just two more brief readings. Rainer Maria Rilke, the German poet, died after a long and really painful illness, and in a letter to a friend shortly before he died, he wrote of the importance of opening to suffering He emphasized the possibilities which are awakened when we face the difficult mysteries of life. He says, It is true that these mysteries are dreadful, and people have always drawn away from them. But where can we find anything sweet and glorious that would never wear this mask of the dreadful? Whoever does not, sometime or other, give his or her full and joyous consent to the dreadfulness of life can never take possession of the unutterable abundance and power of our existence, can only walk on its edge, and one day, when judgment is given, will it be neither alive or dead. And I'm going to end with a poem by E.E. E. Cummings, which is my favorite poem in the whole world he says i thank you god for most of this amazing day for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and the blue true dream of sky and for everything which is natural which is infinite which is yes i who have died am alive again today and this is the sun's birthday this is the birthday of love and of life and wings and of the gay great happening illimitably earth Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are open. Thank you.